Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in History. I just spoke with Sanjay Subramaniam about his brand new book, Courtly Encounters, Translating Courtliness and Violence in Early Modern Eurasia, that came out in 2012 with the Harvard University Press. This is a book that's interesting in many ways for both the scholar and the casual reader of history. It's interesting um, on one level because of the kind of larger argument that Subramaniam is presenting throughout the book. Now, looking at encounters between and among peoples in the context of early modern global history has presented a kind of problem for other scholars who have written about this issue. And that problem is what gets translated, what can be translated, and what remains untranslatable. This kind of, uh, sort of roughly speaking, this kind of problem often takes the name of the problem of commensurability or incommensurability. And those who might be familiar with the history of science and the philosophy of science might be familiar with this idea as it's worked out by people like Kuhn and Feyerabend. But just kind of more simply, this is really an issue of what can and cannot be communicated. Now, this has presented uh, a very it's, it's occupied a really central role in the historiography of the early modern world, certainly um, in recent years. And the way that most scholars, or in my experience, most scholars attempt to deal with this issue is either by saying, um, you know, incommensurability happens and it happens this way, or incommensurability doesn't make sense, there's always communication. What Supermanium does with this issue and with this set of problems is really interesting. Instead of saying, well, incommensurability doesn't make sense, he gives us a very particular tool and a very particular set of directions for how to deal with this problem. Commensurability he argues, is something that has to be made. So relations between cultures have to be mediated, he says, and this mediation involves the production of commensurability. So rather than assuming from the outset that two languages, cultures, peoples are or are not capable of communicating, we should think of the capability of communication, commensurability, as something that's made, and it's made in specific ways by specific people at specific times, right? So rather than focusing on these sort of larger inchoate issues of translatability or not, we need to focus on particular acts that produced this communication. Okay. So it's really interesting for um, anybody interested in these larger sets of issues, issues of translation, issues of global history, issues of communication, but it's also really interesting as a set of very focused case studies that introduce some really fascinating images and characters 
who played sometimes very minor um, roles in the literature of early modern history, but here they play very major roles in a series of arguments about the importance of diplomacy, warfare, and visual representation in terms of the way we think about communication among cultures in early modern Eurasia. So with that, I bring you our interview, and it was, um, it was really quite interesting for me, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Sanjay. Hi. We're here today to talk with Sanjay Subramaniam about his new book, Courtly Encounters, Translating Courtliness and Violence in Early Modern Eurasia. Welcome to New Books in History, Sanjay, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's my pleasure. So could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? Early in the book, you mentioned that you were originally trained as an economic historian of South Asia and the Indian Ocean, and you've, um, in the intervening years, expanded quite broadly to publish on a wide number of topics, in particular, looking more broadly at Eurasia uh, and sort of early modern Eurasia. So how did, what brought you to that transformation in the kinds of things that you're looking at? And, and can you talk about that a little bit? Well, actually, um, even before I was an economic historian, I was trained as an economist. So actually, all my degrees are in economics. I don't have any history degrees at all. And um, what happened was gradually, uh, while uh, working in economics, I was sort of drawn to economic history. And I came from a place, an institution called the Delhi School of Economics in the University of Delhi, which had a big tradition of working basically on early modern trade history, right? So the history of the East India companies, uh, the history of uh, of various uh, traders uh, in the Indian Ocean and elsewhere. And so I, my initial work was very much in that tradition. So it was sort of the economic history of trade. And then what happened was that... Uh, of course, I published some books in that in that kind of area. I uh, then uh, eventually stopped uh, uh, teaching in India and I moved to France in the mid-90s. And when I moved to France, um, I was exposed to what was by then, you know, uh, no longer the generation of Prodel and so on, but the, clearly the two generations after that. And in the course of that, I came to... Uh, uh, look at new kinds of objects and new kinds of histories. And eventually, sometime when I was over there in the late 90s, I came up with this sort of idea of what I call doing connected histories. And of course, that required me to acquire some more skills than the ones I had to start with and do a different set of archives. But actually, the place I was in at that time, they called the Institute of Sciences Sociales, was a really ideal place for that. Some great conversations, you know, some great colleagues. Now, the book at hand focuses specifically on how courtly encounters were a crucial site, or rather crucial sites, for developing what you call mutual perceptions and representations across Eurasia. So what brought you to this topic in particular, this focus on courtly encounters as a site for sort of looking at these connections in history? Actually, it's the intersection of various different things I've been doing at different moments. So uh, you could see uh, that I had sort of done this trade history uh, kind of thing, which was very much in the same period. Uh, it was looking at a certain set of archives. Um, and then um, I also, uh, at the same time, in the course of the 90s, started these other projects. I did two quite distinct collaborative projects, one from the early 90s, a book called Symbols of Substance. I did that with uh, two literary scholars on court culture in, in South India. Uh, so you can see that there already the interest in the court was there. And then subsequently, I worked with another 
very close friend and collaborator of mine, uh, Muzaffar Alam, on uh, Mughal uh, court culture. And so uh, I was sort of doing the trade history and uh, the, uh, you know, long distance uh, relationships, uh, fundamentally economic relationships. And then I was also doing this political culture thing. And so in a sense, sort of logical at some point to bring the two together. So what I'll, I'll, what I'm going to do is ask you a little bit about the form of the book, but we'll get back to this issue of courtly encounters and court culture in a moment because it is um, so central to the work that the book does. So the book itself started as a series of lectures that you delivered at Bryn Mawr in November 2009. Can you talk a little bit about the, that transition from the Mary Flexner lectures to the book at hand, um, especially because here at the New Books Net- Network, one of the things that we're really interested in is the the book as an object and the form of a book. Were there any major transformations in the way you were thinking about these issues? Were there any sort of major changes? Can you talk about that process a little bit? Well, actually, uh, you know, the, it was quite a focused um, process because, uh, you know, when I agreed to give the lectures, I already had signed the book contract along with the lectures. And it was uh, very much uh, on their minds that they wanted the book out, you know, pretty quickly. They didn't want to wait a long time for it. So um, I was actually already sort of very much with the form of the book in mind when I was giving the lectures. And they actually had this very nice uh, uh, thing which they set up for me, which is that every time I gave a lecture, the next day there would be a sort of a a long discussion uh, with the Bryn Mawr faculty uh, who had attended the lecture, and they would give me their feedback. And that was great, actually, because... uh, uh, though Bryn Mawr is a you know it's a small liberal arts college, it's a it's a quality place, and and a bunch of people showed up: historians, art historians, anthropologists, and so I would you know get this sort of feedback. They were like getting referees reports on each lecture as it was going along, and uh, so that was very helpful. Of course, the big thing which I had to do uh, was that uh, you know the lectures were very heavily illustrated, and then finally I had to pick and choose because there was no way in which they were going to allow me. You know that number of illustrations. So um, I'm a bit um, I'm a bit uh, sad about that. But uh, you know, one has to be realistic. Um, no university press normally is going to allow you to do a hundred uh, illustrations or 120 illustrations. Now, were there any moments in those conversations, and, and I ask this because I love that format of uh, getting real-time feedback right after the lecture, were there any moments that you recall that actually urged you to rethink something that you had given in the lecture? Were there any sort of major changes uh, for you in the way you're thinking about these topics that came out of that? Well, actually, um, I think the, the one of the chapters, which is the one on martyrdom, we'll come back to that, uh, uh, people ask me some questions about, you know, what the limits of it are, are, where does martyrdom occur, where doesn't it occur, what is its link to monotheism or not to monotheism and so on. So that actually uh, caused me to frame uh, it somewhat differently. So actually the initial section of the chapter is somewhat different, in fact, quite different from the uh, way in which the lecture was, was uh, framed. Um, uh, so far as the others were concerned, I think the changes were less dramatic though again i mean you know they pushed me sometimes to clarify things or or to say things out more uh, uh, explicitly sometimes than i was than i was saying them i mean i sometimes have a people have said i have a sort of too elusive a style you know i say things passing rather than than you know uh, up front uh, sometimes so uh, i think the 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 fact that it was delivered in this fashion you know 
it's obviously not like, let's say, giving a set of classroom lectures and transforming it into a textbook, which is a whole other exercise, but still. That's great. So getting into the meat of the book now, in the introduction, you raise the theme of encounters, and this is um, related to the idea of connected histories that you brought up, I think, just a few moments ago. And you consider how early modern encounters are typically depicted in much of the historiography that we have of the early modern world, and you raise the metaphor of a, the kind of earthling encountering the alien as a way to that this has been treated in the past. Now, this is certainly um, the case coming from... Uh, my field, which is the history of science, is we have a lot of this kind of historiography. Another kind of historiography we have a lot of speaks to the way you're developing this initial theme. And that is looking at the idea of incommensurability. Now, as you say early in the book, a theme pervades the kind of prevailing historiography on encounters that we have. And that is a kind of skepticism with regard to the possibilities of communication and what we might call cultural commensurability among groups of people in history. Now, you bring this out as a theme that's going to go on to become central to what you're arguing really throughout the book. And this is a, a really crucial theme, I think, of more general interest to any of us who are working on uh, global themes in history and certainly of the early modern world. So I'd love um, if you could talk a little bit about that. How did this theme of incommensurability uh, in intercultural communication come to uh, be something that you were interested in exploring in this work, and, and in fact, helping us challenge um, this idea? Well, actually, you know, um, uh, that uh, introductory chapter, of course, was not delivered as one of the lectures. The lectures were the three subsequent chapters. But it was very much on my mind because I had already um, thought about that, and I had delivered uh, a version of that in a, two very different contexts. So one where people didn't find it all that interesting in uh, something on empires in Minnesota. But actually, the where it did work was I was invited um, by Sophia University in Tokyo for, I think, the 500th anniversary of the birth of Francis Xavier. And uh, uh, I delivered a version of this lecture there, you know, in a context where, obviously, for, you know, for them as uh, interested in the Jesuits and so on, uh, this was uh, something quite central to, to a lot of their, their, own, their own reflection. And uh, when I was doing that, actually, um, to tell you the truth, the fact is that I was very much uh, influenced by conversations I had been having with uh, early modern historians of science. I mean, uh, notably, um, you know, uh, my friend Kapil Raj in, in uh, Paris and, and Simon Schaffer in Cambridge. And in fact, I wrote a short essay for something which they had done, a book called The Brokered World which is actually about mediation, which is, you know, a uh, related theme to commensurability, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, that was actually exactly where I was coming from. So I had a very, in, in that initial version of it, it was, it was quite schematic what I had in mind. And then I started thinking to myself, well, you know, maybe it's worth my while to sort of, to work this out in terms of a, of, you know, uh, considerable detail in a set of, 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 uh, examples are using a set of materials. Uh, and so that's really a little bit the way uh, it worked out. So this introduction is really a sort of an earlier piece that I had, and then um, it's been reworked, and then these chapters actually f were developed to, in a way, flesh out the somewhat schematic ideas of the introduction. I think one of the most useful things about um, your treatment of incommensurability here, and there are many useful things about it, but 
just as a reader who's interested in these ideas, um, and I know many of our listeners also um, have heard in different interviews uh, other authors who are working on global history, Avner Benzakin, Roger Hart, also take on this idea of incommensurability rather than just simply stating well, incommensurability doesn't make sense, let's not think that way, you're giving us a very concrete um, and practical alternative. You state early in the book, and we'll come back to this in the last chapter, that commensurability, rather than existing prior to an encounter, is something that had to be made by the agents. So rather than assuming that there are or are not bridges that exist in nature prior to an encounter, we, we ought to think about this, or we might productively think about this, as sort of in terms of these bridges being built by the agents. So I think this is, um, this is a very uh, new way into this relative to the existing historiography that treats incommensurability um, or commensurability in early modern history and and very useful. And this is something that we'll get back to over the course of um, our discussion about the book, I hope. So in order to move beyond this assumption of incommensurability, we then consider, or you consider in the book, encounters among states and empires that belonged to some sort of overlapping geographical or cultural zones. The book uses the theme of courtly encounter to explore um, these zones and to explore the kinds of bridges that were built, um, as uh, to use a metaphor that you uh, that we I just brought up in these zones. So, could you talk about that a moment? You you briefly mentioned um, when you talked about getting interested in this topic that you had been exploring courtly culture in some other projects. But can you take on for us right now what about that context? What about the court and the courtly context is particularly useful um, for you to work out these issues in the book itself? Well, um, you know, um, there is, of course, uh, a considerable literature on court cultures, uh, both sort of historical and sort of historical sociological. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, Norbert uh, Elias comes to mind straight away. But as, uh, you know, uh, one thinks about these things, um, very often uh, people tend to treat them really as sort of about the morphology of, of, of a courtly culture to see you know, how the bits and pieces of a court sort of fit together, right? Um, and now, of course, the advantage with courts is that uh, they're relatively well-documented parts of, 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 of most societies. Uh, but uh, the, the way in which people have tended to treat them very often is, as I said, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, for instance, uh, courtly rituals, or uh, you know um, how uh, the space of a court is is is, is organized or regulated, uh, you know things like uh, like like this, and especially I think the sort of uh, there was also in the in, in the seventies and the eighties a kind of an anthropological turn to this kind of uh, rituals of royalty kind of stuff, uh, which was which was being which was being done. Um, so I thought that you know uh, the advantage was on the one hand you had that literature, so you could actually. Um, sort of look at it as, as, a, as a resource. But on the other hand, uh, clearly that literature, you know, was determined to do everything sort of court by court, or at best think of this as being a question of comparing courts, right? So comparing Islamic courts, for instance, is something which, you know, people do in, in even in standard courses on Islamic history. But I mean, the real question was, um, you know, which is sort of there when you think of, of uh, you know, so many of the, the iconic uh, Encounters, uh, you know, whether you think of, of uh, you know, Matteo Ricci uh, in in China, or 
you know, the, the, the samurai who are, you know, sent uh, by the Tokugawa to on their embassy. I mean, these are people who are, are dealing with court cultures in reality. You know, they're not dealing with some other segment of society on some random basis. So that's really uh, where my, my, my you know, interest in this, in using the court came from, which is the fact that there was a rich literature. I had myself participated in this literature, but I hadn't participated in it in, it in this way. I'd participated in it in a different way. And so I thought, well, here's an opportunity from, from that point of view. Now, consistently over the course of the book, and before we get into, this will be my, my last question before we get into the first um, chapter and the first case study, the narrative brings us back to the importance of specificity, working through specific moments where these bridges emerged in specific cases through a historical methodology that is very much based in close reading texts and the following through of the development of a narrative based on working very, very closely with very specific moments in these historical documents. Can you talk a little bit about that as a methodological approach or the importance of the specific moment um, in uh, in this book and in the methodology you're bringing to this book in its possibilities of opening up these connections that we wouldn't see otherwise? Well, it's sort of interesting because it's a sort of, uh, you know, um, rethinking of something uh, because I was, you know, trained in a school which is very, um, you know, macro historical, uh, which is uh, typical of a lot of economic history. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, even the manner in which some of my colleagues or some of the people who I worked with initially, you know, used to take archival notes uh now when i think about it it's kind of surprising because they would really you know very radically summarize documents um and i mean increasingly over time i've realized that uh you know my way of dealing with those materials is not at all that because it means that i can go back and use a set of archival notes once i can go back to them 10 years later and read them and find something quite different um so that happened to me. And why it happened to me, I suppose it happened because of two or three different reasons. One is, I think the fact that I worked in the early 90s with these literary scholars, David Shulman and Velcharu Narayan Rao, and I mean, working with them was quite an education, you know, but it was more of an education, you might say, in reading texts than in, you know, reading archives. But I mean, I think it's eventually sort of spilt over. And then also, I mean, over time, I think I've sort of come to uh, think about this stuff uh in relation to a number of specific projects. I mean, I did a book on Vasco da Gama in the late 90s, and I actually did some really uh, close reading of, of archival materials for that. And then, I mean, I have to say that since moving to UCLA, um, I've sort of um, had a re-engagement uh, with, uh, you know, uh, microhistory, uh, at least because I had the good fortune to overlap some years over here with, with Carlo Ginsberg and... Uh, we had a lot of interesting discussions, and um, so that also, I think, is something which I am um, bringing in uh, or bringing to bear uh, in this. So that's really um, a sort of set of quite distinct, I suppose, influences. But in a way, it's a, it's not exactly a mea culpa, but it's something like that about with regard to some of the early uh, early things uh, that I was trained to do, which was much more broad, you know, broad sweep and 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 very very macro. So the book goes on to explore these issues of incommensurability and the um, the kind of uh, 
the ways that you're challenging the way we think about this issue in terms of three concrete themes and three concrete moments, really, um, in this larger 16th and 17th century Eurasian history story that you're giving us. These are moments and themes that center around diplomacy, warfare, and visual representation, and we'll come to these in turn. So first, let's turn our attention to the first chapter, where, where you're looking at the context of diplomacy, um, diplomatic communication. Chapter one looks at the ways that Muslim and non-Muslim states in South Asia dealt with one another as court systems, and we've talked about the importance of this idea of court. The chapter focuses on 16th century India and the relationships of a series of states in the Deccan. Now, all of these states emerged out of a, a long historical process, um, starting in the 13th century, as you tell us here. And by the 15th century, there were rival courtly centers in the Deccan. And this is really important for the story that emerges here. So chapter one looks at the a kind of exchanges and conflicts among these rival centers focusing on Persian and Portuguese materials. And you use Persian and Portuguese materials to look at a very particular moment um, where the narration of a particular story changes. It, it's different, interestingly, across different kinds of languages and documents. And this tells us something um, about uh, the larger themes of the book. Now, this moment that we look at here is the Battle of 1565, also known, like you tell us by a number of different names, the Battle of the Three Kings is one of them. Can you, since this is such a key moment in this chapter, can you outline the basic elements of the story? What was the Battle of 1565? The, the, the most, uh, the typical name given to it in sort of Indian historical uh, textbooks and so on is the Battle of, of Talikota, which of course is very funny because it, it didn't take place in Talikota, but never mind. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, uh, this is a battle which, you know, uh, resonates um, even today in politics. It's actually uh, quite very important uh, in, in that sense uh, because many people look at it as a sort of key moment when, you know, Muslim uh, kings and, and, and Islamic courtly culture came to dominate in, in India, uh, you know, um, and just sort of seen by some as, this, you know, from a Hindu nationalist perspective as a great sort of tragedy. Um, and uh, this um, battle actually, um, finally, nobody has worked on it for quite a while, you know, and the sort of narrative of it has just become extremely standardized. And, you know, everybody from V.S. Naipaul and his travel accounts to uh, you know, people making uh, documentary movies just repeat the same the same narrative, and uh, I was actually much more interested in in uh, looking at it afresh, looking at the materials afresh, including some things which nobody had really looked at very much. Um, but above all, um, making an argument that look, uh, there's a clearly an enormous history of intimacy almost, and 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 going back and forth between these courtly centers. So to imagine, as some people have, that, you know, there was a, a clash of civilizations or as some people in India call it a cultural fault line, which sort of somehow separated these two, uh, seemed a priori to me um, to be rather improbable. And as I went on reconstructing the different versions of it, what came together was was precisely how much, in fact, even in the manner in which, you know, insults were exchanged, and provocations were sent back and forth. Uh, you know how much actually um, was shared between 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 these courts. Of course, it didn't make them exactly congruent, but um, 
but I, I thought that it was kind of important also in a, you know, post, uh, you know, clash of civilizations uh, type of, uh, type of uh, scenario, which is, you know, still got a big hold on the popular imagination, even in places like India. So one of the chapters uh, spends a good deal of time on the work of a Persian author from the early 17th century called the Tariq or the Gulshani Ibrahimi of Muhammad Qasim Hindu Shah, or also known as Firishta. So can you talk a little bit um, for listeners who may not be familiar um, with certainly with this figure or with Persian history, can you talk a little bit about um, who is this author and um, can you introduce his version of this story? And then we'll go on to sort of look at the way the Portuguese versions that you um, give us here differ from that version and why that's interesting. Yeah, so you know, Firishta was uh, someone who actually was living in the area, uh, though he was himself of Iranian origin. He and his father had migrated from Iran, but he was actually living in the area at the time of this battle. So even though he wrote about it probably about uh, 35, 40 years after the battle took place, uh, you can consider him in some sense to be an author who's contemporary to the event. And uh, it's part of a huge chronicle that he wrote, uh, which was written uh, in uh, one of these uh, courtly centers, which were um, uh, which, which actually won uh, this battle. Uh, it was written um, essentially uh, both to um, uh, rival and in a way to draw upon what was being written simultaneously in the Mughal court, because the Mughals by this time were producing huge numbers of very large chronicles. But this chronicle was actually quite extraordinary because it has very diverse geographical coverage inside of uh, South Asia. And so, in fact, um, it's one of the first chronicles uh, in Persian to be translated by the East India Company's servants into English. And it was actually even read or read in some sort of way by Samuel Johnson in the, in the late 18th century. It's a very, very important text. Um, and uh, the author is, is uh, someone who you know, used a lot of earlier materials. Uh, but he's also a very curious author because, you know, for instance, even with regard to this battle, he tells the story of the battle twice in two different sections having to do with two different sultanates, and he doesn't tell exactly the same story. So uh, there's also this problem of uh, an interesting lack of coherence even within within this text, uh, which I think gives it an sort of added uh, added frequency. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the story at all, I'm going to give the kind of quick and dirty one-minute version of kind of some of the major, um, just the major narrative arc. So there's a main character um, who I'll call Rama Raya, and he's encroaching on the dominion of the Muslim kings of the Deccan. Then there's this, at the same time, there's this double marriage alliance between two of those kings. After making the alliance, one of the rulers sends a messenger to basically ask Rama Raya to cede territory. He refuses. They kind of expect that he's going to refuse. And this instigates a battle as the sultans collectively move to Ramaraya's territory to attack him. It ends um, kind of in with different kinds of flourishes and different kinds of descriptions of battle in different versions of the story. But in, in all the versions of the story, I think, um, I'm, I'm remembering correctly, um, he's captured, he's killed. Um, in one case, he falls off his elephant um, and he's beheaded. Okay, so how do, can you, because... One of the things about this chapter that's so interesting and so central is that you're talking about, um, in getting at these larger themes of the narrative import of insults and the way that we can read intimacy into these narrative accounts, you give us um, 
you're sort of comparing not just translations and the different renderings of translators, but different versions of this account. So can you, um, as a way to get at these larger themes, talk a little bit about um, how Portuguese accounts of the story, and you talk about one of um, Koto, or Koto, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, um, in particular. Kuto, okay. <laughs> Kuto. How do they differ from the way um, that Farishta is... Uh, telling us the story, and, and how do those differences um, tell us something about the importance of intimacy and insults in this context? Well, the version of Koto, which he claims he got from Portuguese mercenaries who were present on the battlefield, uh, actually uh, is, um, first of all, it makes the battle out to be considerably more chaotic than the Persian chroniclers make it out to be. The Persian chroniclers actually make it out to be this very, very sort of uh, stylized set piece uh, battle where there are different generals on the two sides who are facing each other and, you know, penetration uh, takes place on one flank and the sort of riposte takes place on the other and so on. Whereas in Koto, everything is sort of pretty chaotic. The engagement is sort of begins on some fairly, um, you know, uh, unplanned basis. And then the, the armies of uh, Ramaraya and Vijayanagar are drawn further and further into it. Um, so there's there's that sense of, of uh, a lack of organization, a lack of order and, a, and chaos, which is actually typical of European descriptions of, of battles in the 16th and 17th century India. Uh, they always see disorder. Uh, now, uh, on the other hand, what is interesting, of course, is that Koto doesn't really grasp um, to the extent that some of the other minor Portuguese chroniclers did, you know, the nature of the complexity of the sort of shifting alliances, because uh, in your excellent summary that you did just now, there's one thing which you uh, which we also need to add to that, which is that uh, it was not as if there was any natural alliance between these four Muslim sultanates on the one hand, as opposed to Vijayanagar on the other. In fact, over the previous previous 30 years, it had usually been the case that one or two of these sultanates were allied with Vijayanagar against the other two. And so there was the whole question of, you know, how this came about. Uh, which uh, different people have very interesting and different versions of. And uh, one of the uh, other uh, writers uh, also mentions the idea that uh, the ruler of Iran, Shah Hamas, might have, through dip uh, diplomacy, played a role in bringing together all these sultanates, which were not only Muslim, but uh, in most instances also Shiite, uh, Shia Muslims. So uh, there's there's a question of what Koto can see and what he can't see, what he understands and what he can't understand. But again, I would be cautious about the idea of imagining that just because he's Portuguese, he's incapable of understanding this or that, because many Portuguese writers actually are capable of understanding quite a lot of what is happening in terms of uh, of the politics of the of the uh, and the cultural politics as well. And I, in fact, one of the things that you're bringing out in this chapter that um, emphasizes but the point that you just made um, is that in terms of these many layers of intimacy that we can read into the set of narratives um, and this narrativization in different ways of this battle, one of the moments of it, or one of the ways that intimacy plays in here is that Farishta, another author, Tava Tava, and Koto all lived through the time of the battle and ostensibly had personal acquaintance with its participants. And so it's, it's intimacy coming in here, not just among the, the different rulers of the story, but also a kind of intimacy that we can read into the relationship between the narrator and that being narrativized. And so, so where does insult come into the story? 
Um, because you, you situate this within a larger historiography at one moment of the, in the chapter of insults in history. But and can you say just can you speak briefly to um, what is important in this particular case about the notion of and, and the kind of mechanics of a practice of insult? Well, actually, there are two quite interesting uh, and parallel insult uh, narratives. So there's one set of them which come to us inside Farishta's Chronicle. So, you know, there are all these things which are all about sort of status jockeying, or there's this one very interesting moment when one of the sultans before this battle actually meets up with uh, Ramaraya. And um, then uh, he, uh, uh, because he's had to touch him, he asks somebody to bring water and washes his hands very conspicuously. And uh, so then, of course, uh, Ramaraya takes this very badly. And in a way, this is meant to also give us a sense of something, which is um, actually why they kill him on the battlefield, which is not something which they've been doing. I mean, they've had a lot of battles in the previous 50 years, but none of the rulers was ever killed on the battlefield. So uh, there's some reason they feel that there's some heightened sense of anger. But there's, of course, this whole other narrative, which is not in Persian, but in uh, kind of uh, Dakini, which is a sort of Persianized uh, vernacular of the area, where there's a very elaborate story told of how, uh, you know, Ramaraya consistently insults, uh, even in sort of somewhat sexualized sense uh, messages, uh, you know, uh, insulting the wives of and so on of the sultans and creates a situation in which by, you know, adding insult to insult to insult, layer upon layer, finally he kind of enrages them to the point that it has to come to this kind of a violent, violent ending. It's very interesting because, um, you know, uh, in that narrative, it's not as if the sultans just go out and get him because he's not a Muslim or because he's a bad person or something. It's as if they have to be provoked, you know, in order to act in, or act in this way, which is kind of interesting considering that, that text was one which was produced in their courts. So it shows them acting under a very grave provocation and duress rather than something which you know they do out of sheer bravery or something. Now, you alluded very briefly before to um, what we might call different kinds of performance of battle in these different texts. And this brings us to uh, the second chapter in, in a way. So one of the major themes of this second chapter on courtly martyrdom explores is the notion of, and this is something that you bring up early um, in the introduction, I think, the notion of the incommensurability of military cultures, right? And this actually turns out to be not so incommensurable when you look at, again, specific moments of encounter. And these moments um, in this chapter center around martyrdom. Now, the chapter looks at the issue of martyrdom in the context of warfare, um, especially in relations between Muslims and Christians here. It focuses on close reading of narratives of martyrdom in the context of conversion in South and Southeast Asia, and in particular focuses on captivity and martyrdom um, as a theme of some of the most important cases here. Okay, the chapter then takes us into the Western Malay world, and here we have our sort of set piece for most of the chapter. The Portuguese captured the great port city of Malacca in, 14, in 1511. Okay. And the, you, you bring us through the story, um, I'll just mention this briefly for listeners, again, who might be unfamiliar with this. The former sultan of Malacca moves to a series of towns further and further south, but it was a series of other maritime powers that then come in to challenge the Portuguese. The most significant of these was the sultanate of, and again, I'm going to um, try to pronounce this, but I apologize, you can correct me, of Ace? Ace, Ace. Ace, fantastic. 
um, Aceh. So the Sultanate of Aceh in northern Sumatra, this is a formidable center of Islam, a formidable center of trade. Um, so can you speak a little bit um, to Aceh? Can you just say a little bit about its importance in this context? Because it comes out in the book that it's so central, but Aceh may be, again, for early modern historians who aren't familiar with this area, um, this may not be a, a super familiar place for them. Yes, it's actually uh, something which, um, you know, I think in the last uh, uh, 40 years or so uh, has been brought back into prominence. Actually, the Dutch wrote quite a lot about uh, Aceh because uh, it was one of the places that, that consistently resisted them. And there were lots of violent combats between the Dutch and the Achenese uh, in the course of colonial rule. But in the last 40, 50 years, a series of historians have actually written about how this center arose as this great uh, sort of anthropo uh, center of pepper trade and so on, but actually also as a very interesting place where uh, connections were established both to India and to the Middle East. So, in fact, uh, uh, Aceh had these close maritime links with the Red Sea. And also because of that, they had links with the world of the Ottoman Empire. And so there were uh, uh, there was a kind of an informal um, and sometimes even formal Ottoman presence there. Uh, and so what you actually get is this very interesting court culture, which is uh, Sunni, um, which is uh, Malay, of course, but which is also inflected both uh, by its relations to uh, India, uh, especially Western India, Gujarat, and uh, to, to the Ottoman world and the Arab-speaking world. So um, in a sense... Um, you know, uh, when you're thinking of, if you're thinking about about 17th century uh, uh, Indonesian or Southeast Asian Islam, well, this is in a way the central place. So the main case that we're focusing on in this chapter is a case of uh, Luis Montero Cotino. Am I pronouncing that? Cotino. Cotino. Yeah. yeah. I will get this. Ask me to speak Chinese. I could do that for you, but I clearly need to learn some Portuguese. Okay. So this case of Cotino. Um, now, we know about him, and you introduce him in this chapter, through the work of a really, really fascinating example of the kinds of go-betweens or intermediaries that you were alluding to in describing um, a, sort of a brief work that you did on incommensurability prior to this book, early in our conversation. And that is um, a, the, this go-between or intermediary named Aredia. Could you say a little bit about him? Because he seems like um, not just a fascinating character um, for us, but also somebody who produced a really, really interesting document through which we're, we're getting this story of Coutinho um, for all kinds of, or, or interesting on all kinds of levels. So can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, uh, Eredia has actually been worked on in the past by people because he was a very prolific author, and, but most of the work has been essentially on his other writings, principally, uh, I would say, three of three sets of writings. So he was a fairly decent draftsman. So he did, you know, uh, a certain number of drawings of fortresses and, uh, you know, um, fortified places and so on. So that's been published and used. There is a second work by him, uh, which is actually on, um, uh, which is a sort of very, very uh, fanciful geography of, of uh, Southeast Asia, uh, which uh, has all kinds of places that may or may not have existed in it. And some people have even used that as evidence of how much the Portuguese knew about Australia. And uh, the third uh, thing that he wrote, which has been used quite a lot, is a book, is actually a, a botanical, a small botanical treatise on on, uh, on plants and trees 
in in uh, in India mostly. Uh, but this uh, text which I'm using uh, here was something which he was commissioned to do, and it's one of his more obscure writings. Now, the interesting thing about Eredio, uh, Gudinu de Eredia, uh, is that he was actually half Portuguese and half Southeast Asian. And uh, he had this mixed culture, which was uh, on the one hand an advantage, but on the other hand was a disadvantage because you know he wanted to join the Jesuits and he was clearly discriminated against and eventually he never made it very far in the order. And so he became this sort of autodidact, uh, self-promoting author uh, with a slightly ungovernable uh, imagination sometimes. Now, the, f- the central figure in this chapter and the figure that um, hopefully will let us talk about the importance of martyrdom as a central theme is Coutinho. Um, Coutinho is notable, uh, or his case is notable for all kinds of reasons, but in particular, you emphasize the importance of the fact that he was martyred with a canon or a basilisco. So can you talk a little bit about um, Coutinho and, and what does his case help us understand about the importance of martyrdom? Um, in terms of the larger argument of the book that you're making? Well, actually, the interesting thing about Coutinho is that he's sort of a little bit, not quite an everyman, but he's quite an obscure figure. So, I mean, he, he is mentioned briefly in one or two chronicles, but it's actually because Eredia wrote this quite elaborate text about him and illustrated it that we have, uh, you know, as much about him as we as we do, even if Eredia is rather unreliable on a lot of matters. But... Uh, um, what we have here is someone who comes from the north of Portugal, who sort of typical soldiering family, uh, has this whole, uh, you know, career uh, fighting in a number of different places, is wounded and so on. And then eventually, in this very foolhardy way, falls into the hands of the Achinis, is offered conversion and refuses conversion. And therefore, the alternative to conversion is to be blown out of the mouth of a, of a cannon. Now, what's interesting is actually that Apparently, uh, this was something which was a matter of great concern for the upper echelons of the Portuguese hierarchy, which is that very often uh, people, when they were offered conversion, took it. So, in fact, uh, in most of the uh, you know important courts of uh, maritime uh, India and Southeast Asia, there were converted Portuguese who had become Muslims. Uh, and in fact, this is something which they go on talking about in a number of uh, texts and in a great deal of unease, uh, how easy it is to become a Muslim and so on. And um, so this man who actually was one of the conspicuous examples who refused to become a Muslim, though he was actually offered this directly by the Sultan, apparently, and and uh, his punishment was also exemplary and done in a kind of courtly setting, um, becomes for them the counterexample to be held up to say, you know, uh, here's this man, he had the courage, you know, he became a martyr for the cause, uh, he, even this grisly and terrible death, uh, he was willing to, 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 to undergo it. So it's a, it's a very, um, uh, you know, uh, in a way, um, uh, it's a very strange admission of uh, Portuguese weakness in a, in, a, in a certain sense, because they know that it is all too easy to convert, and that's what most people do in these circumstances. So can you say a, a bit about how uh, how this particular case and how martyrdom and martyrdom in the context of possible or the offer of conversion speaks to this larger set of phenomena that you're um, showing in each of these chapters, and that is the building of a bridge um, that sort of makes 
different kinds of cultural regimes commensurable? In what way does this case of martyrdom build a bridge for us and help us think past or think beyond um, the, the kind of incommensurability in this history? Well, actually, you see, the whole thing is is this, that, uh, I mean, there's an interesting text which uh, doesn't refer to, to Coutinho, but which, is in, which I've used to give some context to this, which is a text which is called uh, it's translated as something like the excellence and honor of the soldiering life in the Portuguese Indies. And that text actually gives you, uh, sets up the problem for you because what it actually says is it's a text which is insisting in its own way. It's a 16th, early 17th century text. It's a text which is insisting in its own way that these cultures are incommensurable. It's actually telling people, its readers, you know, all these people, these Portuguese come here, they think that, you know, life looks terribly good on the other side and they just go over but they don't realize what they're losing because it's these transitions which appear so simple to them are really not so simple. Now, in a sense, again, that is an admission. It's, it's, it's an attempt to desperately shore up a the- thesis of incommensurability in the face of facts which are taking in the opposite direction, right? And, and this, this uh, instance is actually this very curious instance where, you know, finally, um, you know, the, the Sultan appreciates uh, this guy, Luis Monteiro Coutinho. He thinks of him as a warrior in exactly the same, with exactly the same kind of values as the ones that he appreciates. Uh, he thinks that, you know, he's perfectly fine. There's only one small detail which needs to be worked out, which is he needs to just, you know, uh, update his religion. And it's fine to have Jesus as a, as a, a prophet, but not as a messiah. And you should understand who the real, pro- uh, the final prophet is. Now, this is actually quite interesting because of the fact that, you know, uh, we're often told that uh, Christians and Muslims, even in the 16th century, were not capable of, of um, you know, uh, having any such grounds for, for a conversation. It's clear that all kinds of grounds for conversations existed. And the man who refuses the conversation is being actually, in a sense, uh, you know, put up as, as the great, as the great uh, hero by people who actually are invested in the idea of incommensurability, even in the 16th century. It's an interesting idea. And he's sort of being put up in this spectacular way. I mean, you're really um, emphasizing the importance here of the fact that he was not just killed, he was blown up with this cannon. And in this very, you know, the, the guy who does this try, lights the cannon and shoots off some cannonballs and tries to scare him a few times, you know, just to sort of Im- give him as the, a way out. Um, but yeah. So one of the things that you brought up um, that bring, brings us really into the final chapter, which is a fascinating chapter um, that looks at a very different kind of uh, a, a, diff- a different kind of commensurability and a different kind of narrative. You mentioned the importance of illustrations um, in the work of Godino de Arabia. And these illustrations are very striking. I mean, we get an illustration of the canon. Um, we get other illustrations in that chapter of um, Eredia chopping off the trunk of an elephant. Now, illustrations from the core of uh, the third chapter. This is a chapter on courtly representations, and it's the final body chapter um, of the book before the conclusion. Now, we come back in the third chapter to the theme of incommensurability, but a specific way of challenging that notion of early modern incommensurability. Early on in the book, you take on the issue of acculturation or adaptation, and you take on assumptions um, that sort of often undergird the idea of acculturation or adaptation assumptions about a kind of structuralist understanding of culture. Now, this brings us to um, the next case in this chapter, 
which is really underlines the way that visual cultures, for example, change over time. It gives us a different way to think about culture through the images um, that it produces. Chapter three moves us well into the 17th century and focuses on the dealings of the Mughal Empire with other actors in a wider Eurasian space. It looks at regimes of circulation, but pays special attention to the circulation of visual tropes, um, and visual tropes in terms of the circulation of artists, of books, and of images. Now, there are two kinds of contexts that you're looking at in this chapter. Um, one is the context of European visual imagery in a Mughal context, and the other is Indian visual representation in the European context. Um, so in, in terms of the first set of cases, European visual imagery in a Mughal context, can you talk a little bit about, um, about that? Um, what is, well, more specifically, one of the things that you raise here is that there's been a lot of attention in scholarship on European visual imagery in the Mughal context, attention toward Christian-oriented imagery in 16th century uh, India. What you're showing here, among other things, um, is that the, it wasn't the narrative content of the images. It wasn't sort of the Christianness of the images that Jesuits brought with them that accounted for their success. But instead, it was sort of elements of their formal innovation as images. So can you talk about that um, a little bit, sort of the, this way of rethinking about the importance of um, Christian imagery in 16th century India and ways in which it was and was not taken up? Yes, uh, because you know it's a uh, it's, it's certainly uh, no um, uh, surprise for for people who've studied uh, Mughal art that you know the Mughals did uh, uh, look at and use and um, make uh, sense of a lot of uh, materials which was which were brought by the Jesuits and by by others. But the whole issue was, uh, as you pointed out, that for the longest time there was an insistence, partly influenced by what the Jesuits said in their letters themselves, and partly because of the prejudices, I think, of some art historians, uh, that uh, the Mughals were doing all this because they were interested in Christianity as such, perhaps even interested in converting themselves, and so on and so forth. But I think that uh, uh, the fact of the matter is that when you actually look at materials, and now we have accumulating a set of quite interesting Materials. You actually, um, there's this very important text that has been found and published, written by a Mughal uh, intellectual of the early 17th century, where he talks about the stuff from his perspective. So you do not no longer have to depend only on what the Jesuits claim was the reception history of these images. And uh, similarly, you have, uh, of course, other evidence which suggests that, for instance, um, Dutch or, or Flemish painting, which didn't have explicitly uh, any kind of religious con uh, content, uh, was uh, also being absorbed. So, you know, if it was so much a question of religion, why this open openness to this, this other stuff? And, I mean, I think finally it, it should be clear to everybody that, you know, the, the, the Mughals had a quite limited interest in Christianity as, uh, you know, as a, as a doctrine or even as a doctrine of rule or anything of this kind. Um, so I think that uh, we should step a little away from that a little bit and think about this, as I said, much more in, in terms of what it brought to their painters and to their studios and what it brought to their, you know, painterly art. It's a kind of, a, I, I'm sort of, I, what I'm effectively doing is sort of secularizing the problem to much to greater degree than, than, than has been the case. But I think there's enough evidence now which, you know, goes in this direction. And there was a, you know, painter from Harlem who showed up in India in the early 17th century, and he wanted to do Christian paintings, but 
what people wanted him to do, as he kept complaining, was you know Venus and Bacchus. Now, one of the one of my favorite parts of the entire book, and one of the most fascinating for me parts of this chapter is something that you bring up in kind of the second set of case studies. And the second set of case studies looks at Indian visual representation in a European context. Now you talk about the work of Rembrandt, and and this is something that's probably a little bit um, better attested for for readers of the book. Rembrandt's use and incorporation of elements from Mughal paintings, but one of the most wonderful moments of the book for me was the description of uh, William Schelling's use of Mughal imagery in his work. And this is accompanied by some really startling images that you've included in this book, too, um, that really tell their own kind of story alongside the story that you're narrativizing with text. So could you, for listeners, um, talk a little bit about him? What's the importance of Schelling in this context? In what ways is he incorporating Mughal imagery in his work? And, And why is that important for the larger argument of the chapter? Okay, so, you know, we are aware uh, now that uh, Mughal paintings started arriving in Europe uh, in dribs and drabs from the 1610s, 1620s, and in the Netherlands probably in some sizable numbers from the 1630s. And it seems that there was a bunch of collectors who had them and uh, showed them to various artists. Uh, we know that you know Rembrandt copied about about uh, 20 and all of them, slightly more than that, but he only made, you know, um, uh, drawings. He never... Uh, wanted to do more with it. Now, uh, Skellings, who was slightly younger than, than than Rembrandt, actually sometimes clearly looked at exactly the same paint, Indian paintings that Rembrandt had looked at. We know that for a fact. Um, but what is actually interesting is that he did these four paintings of Mughal scenes, all having to do with what was regarded in Europe as a very important event at that time, which was, you know, the succession struggle in the mid to late 1650s when the Emperor Shah Jahan was quite aged and his four sons fought out a succession struggle during his own lifetime. And so you have these four paintings that, that Skellings does. So one uh, uh, which shows uh, Shah Jahan and his sons hunting. Uh, that's a fairly banal uh, scene, uh, nicely done. There's a kind of a court dance and music scene. But then there are these two extraordinary scenes which are where he actually takes on board the idea uh, of the composite animal. Now, the tradition of the composite animal is something which had existed in, in Indian painting for uh, certainly a century, maybe more than a century before. But he actually takes it and he incorporates it so that each of the sons is riding some kind of a composite creature, a composite camel, a composite elephant, a composite horse, and a composite palanquin. And these composites are made of women and fish and animals and so on. And it's really a tour de force at some level, what this guy does. But what is actually interesting is, um, you know, uh, I've been able to locate at least one Mughal painting, which is very close to a model for what he's used. And you can actually see what he's done with it. He's, he's changed it, but he's stayed very close to the spirit of it. And it's a kind of a very interesting, you know, Different take on the problem of, let's say, uh, the idea of a sort of exoticizing Orientalism. This is a very, very playful view of how other people represent. It's a very different kind of story about the incorporation of um, images from, from I'm, I'm going to use the broad category Asia because I'm talking about the, the larger set of literature on um, Orientalism in visual art. It's a very different kind of story that we get um, from this particular context. It's a very different kind of image than um, 
than I've seen before in other accounts of Orientalist imagery. Um, so it's, I think it's a really wonderful set of images, and I urge listeners um, to especially um, make sure that you take a look at the images and the narrative in that chapter because it's really, really evocative. Now, you go on um, in the course of this chapter to also show um, or to, to kind of emphasize that these were somewhat unequal exchanges, right? Europeans exported reproductions to Mughal India, and Mughals largely exported the paintings themselves to Europe. And there are different kinds of um, consequences to this different kind of exchange. One of the consequences, or one of the, the phenomena that exists alongside that phenomenon, is that the effect of Mughal art on Europe is actually quite limited. Um, and you show the ways that largely it had a kind of ethnographic impact, and also a contribution to interest in physiognomy, um, and you, there's a really wonderful kind of portraiture um, in this ch in this chapter that does that. Now, Sanjay, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, there's a ton more in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and, and I mentioned earlier that so much of the book is, um, and so much of the narrative and the argument is developed through these very beautifully narrated close readings of texts that are very sensitive to not just particular terms and particular words and narrative movements in the text you're looking at, but also transitions among them. So there's a whole lot um, about the argument and about this book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, that you'd like to mention for, reader, or for readers and for listeners um, that we didn't cover, but that you'd especially like to point out about the book? Well, no, I think that, you know, uh, the question, of course, uh, could be asked since I've also framed it somewhat in, the, in that way of, uh, you know, whether this is uh, something which necessarily had to be limited, you know, to, to Eurasia in the sense that I've done it. Uh, and I would say, uh, obviously not. I mean, it's purely that I had uh, limitations in terms both of space and, and, and competence, um, but there's no reason why uh, it has to be in the Euro Eurasian space. Um, but I think, and, I, and of course, it's also true that I've hardly covered, you know, all of the possibilities in the Eurasian space. There's very little here about about East Asia, for instance, um, uh, at all. But I still hope that there's enough in there which is suggestive that, you know, uh, people who uh, don't necessarily uh, uh, work on this part of the world uh, would, would see it as, as sort of bringing something to their discussion as well. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What particular project is inspiring you right now? Well, I have uh, two things uh, on my mind. I mean, one is a project of my own, which is uh, actually about the the uh, origins of, of uh, French uh, dealings uh, with uh, with uh, Asia and especially India in the uh, in the 16th and especially the 17th centuries, looking both at trade and at uh, intellectual and uh, sort of representational uh, problems sort of leading up to the formation of the French East India Company. And of course, the other thing which I have to do, which is a fairly big task, uh, is uh, uh, complete uh, the work of editing um, the volume six of the Cambridge History of the World, which uh, I had begun with my uh, friend uh, Jerry Bentley, who unfortunately passed away uh, this July, and so um, one has to carry on and, and, and finish that. Uh, so that is, uh, of course, a, a big task as well uh, at hand. Well, best of luck with those projects, and thank you so much for making the time. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to New Books in History. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.